What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching another epic episode of Untold Stories, where together, twice a week, we get to dive deep with some of crypto's most influential leaders, brightest crowns on the box, experienced legal, compliance, and business executives, strategic advisors, you know, politicians, uh, former U.S. attorneys who we have today. The listeners are always emailing me and telling me that, like, this is the best free information they ever get. And it's like almost uh, such, a, such a gratitude thing. The, the guests don't realize that everything, everything you say, the listeners are eating it up like they didn't know the information before and they love it. So thank you. Mary Beth Buchanan, thank you so much for coming on Untold Stories today. Well, thank you so much for having me, Charlie. It's, re it's really my pleasure and honor to, to be with you today. Where, 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 do we, where do we start? You were the uh, former uh, U.S. attorney for um, the Western District of Pennsylvania. Um, you have uh, been a defense attorney and not only that, uh, the CEO of Merkel Science, uh, you were uh, involved in uh, as counsel with with Kraken and Bitstamp and other crypto companies beforehand. So you really understand our industry. And when I was doing uh, the research on Merkel Science, I was very impressed because I feel like there is still uh, uh, negativity and things going on in our industry in the underbelly that used to make headlines to make us look bad, but now because of companies like yours that give, uh, make it easier for compliance across, uh, you know, our whole industry, you don't see that anymore. And I think part of that is, is world regulators and world governments are comfortable more with our industry, knowing that folks like you are kind of acting as the in-between, as the toll booths between the crypto world and the traditional finance world. Do you kind of see, do you kind of feel that? You know, I definitely do, Charlie. And when I first got involved in, in cryptocurrency, it was probably uh, late 13, early 14. And I was a partner with a law firm in New York City, mostly representing individuals uh, who were kind of in the same situation as people that I had previously prosecuted, people who were under investigation, uh, either by the Manhattan DA's office or the U.S. Attorney's office. And I started to get clients from within the cryptocurrency space who are having problems uh, kind of navigating uh, the uncertain space with regulators. And I definitely felt that I had the ability to try to educate my clients about what the regulations were or how we might predict how regulators would see things. And I absolutely felt that it helped them to try to bring a, a little bit of um, experience maybe to bear on, on this new cryptocurrency world. What do you think of, of this whole industry? I mean, do you, do you think that cryptocurrency is kind of the next uh, uh, level or the next phase of, of human civilization, of, of uh, societal change, of how we deal with finance and how we barter with each other and really how, because money and trade is really like half of the relationships that we have with people other than friendships and relationships and, and things like that. So that's being fundamentally changed by this whole industry. Or is it, do you think yeah. it's just like a 10 or 20 year thing? No, no, absolutely. I, I think cryptocurrency is definitely here to, sit, to stay. And when I first got involved uh, in, in cryptocurrency issues, and I would 
be asked to sit on panels. A, a lot of people would ask me to do that because of my prior experience as a prosecutor. And I would always talk about, you know, why it's important that cryptocurrency can't be used for money laundering or terrorist financing or some of those things. And, and that's the way I sort of looked at the industry. And I remember someone sitting in an audience at, at one of these presentations, raising his hand and saying, you know, that's your perspective because you come from the United States. You've never lived in a country where uh, you had to worry about being able to get your family and your assets out of the country because you don't trust the, um, you know, the, the government that might be in place at the time. And I realized, yeah, you're right. I, I haven't had that experience. But I think that for so many people in so many parts of the world, cryptocurrency is the answer. It, it's the way for them to, to collect and, and maintain and preserve uh, their assets. It's that it's that lifeline for them. And I almost see it as the United States is uh, opportunity and almost duty to maintain, help maintain Bitcoin's sovereignty, but also help maintain cryptocurrency's sovereignty, because the world does look at us into a lot of places as like our democracy, how our court system works, you know, as the shining standard, the shining city on the hill. Um, and so a few years ago, when I started to see uh, the industry kind of move outside of the U.S., it hurt me a little bit. It hurt my pride a little bit, but it also made me a little bit sad as an American to see that happen. So it's good. I think 2021, and we predicted, I had someone on the show, we talked about it January for, Jan, early January 2021, and he said, 2021 will have been the year that crypto came back to America. You know, I, I think that you, you have really hit one of the, uh, hit the nail on the head with one of the problems with U.S regulatory uncertainty. If companies want to create and grow, they want to do that in a place where regulations are clear, where they're not going to get surprised. And that's why, you know, some of the other countries who have been a little bit more forward thinking, imagine Abu Dhabi more forward thinking than the United States or, you know, Singapore, uh, places where they have developed comprehensive regulatory teams, people operating in those jurisdictions have clarity. And so if you know what the rules are, you can operate within the rules. And that's why I think some businesses were uncertain about coming to the U.S. or staying in the U.S. because they didn't know, you know what the SEC was going to do next or what the CFTC might do. Do you think that there are any so 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 you guys you're at the you're the soldiers, you're the you're at the forefront. You if anyone goes to Merkel Science, your website, you can actually see the type of like transactions are coming through and you guys flag things like, oh, this will come from ransomware or this transaction may be coming from Silk Road. So you guys are acting as the ability to prevent um, and disincentivize hackers, thieves, ransomware, uh, uh, drug marketplaces, all these negative things that were happening in the early days of crypto. You guys are there preventing those from happening again and from really making us look bad. So, so thank you, first of all, but what are some bad things happening right now that the listeners don't really know about? Like what on the underbelly are there still, I get, I, I've been a little naive. Are like drug marketplaces still a big percentage of transactions going on right now? Can you give us some data? Yeah, I, I actually, I have this data and I wish I wish I had it at my fingertips. First of all, I think that there are some misconceptions. Uh, there, there are rules related to cryptocurrency. There are laws related to cryptocurrency. And as you know, cryptocurrency is traceable across blockchains. And so just because you're 
using cryptocurrency to do something doesn't mean that you, you aren't going to be able to follow that the cryptocurrency as it is used. And and maybe in the early days, you're right, the tools were not developed to be able to do that, but these tools do exist now. And so we can see where the cryptocurrency came from. We can go back, you know, 10 or more hops to, to see where it's been, what type of wallets it's transacted with, and then we can see where it goes. Um, and Unfortunately, yeah, there there are still people that are using cryptocurrency to commit crimes, but there are people using the U.S. dollar to commit crimes. And the the statistics of the amount of cryptocurrency that's used in criminal activity is so much less than than other type of assets. It's still it's still a a big number, and and we have to do everything that we can to try to prevent cryptocurrency from being used for illicit activities. And I, I'm going to get you those actual statistics and give them to you, but I, I can't, I can't give them to you right here. The the whole regulatory complexity within digital assets has probably completely changed over the years. Like it's it's probably changing every year constantly. Yeah, it it is. I mean, at at the time, um, you know, when I first got involved in 2013, 2014, I remember being on panels where people couldn't even agree what cryptocurrency is. You'd have some people saying, you know, it's property, uh, you know, it's a security, it's a commodity, uh, you know, it, and there wasn't even agreement. And today, I think we have a little bit more clarity on on these issues, but still not enough. And our system of regulation is probably more difficult than any other country in the world because we have so many different agencies that have responsibility over certain types of activities. So when you compare some of the other jurisdictions that have come out with comprehensive regulation, they've done it because they've done it through a single monetary authority. So, or so one person. Right. One person. <laughs> one decree. Who, yeah. Who looks at all of the activities and then creates regulations around these activities. And so it's a lot easier when you're doing it with one agency. But in the U.S., we, we look at it and say, well, we have multiple agencies that deal with different types of activity. And depending on how the cryptocurrency is used or what backs it, you know, whether it's more, more commodity-like, more security-like, that would depend on what agency would govern the activity. In a way, the fact that it's slow sometimes is better because how many bad mistakes have been made over wanting to do something fast? And we always end up, the beautiful thing about you know modern day democracies is that you always end up having, uh, most of the time, efficiency gives you that like middle halfway point. And a lot of people are hoping with like the, a lot of the, uh, mod the politics that we're dealing with right now, that that will end up prevailing is this middle road uh, um, type of thing. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And, and there are definitely a lot of issues that Congress is, is uh, grappling with right now, like stablecoins. And, and they want to figure out, you know, how, how can people safely transact with stablecoins? You know, do they need to be backed by certain assets? Do they need uh, to be audited? Does, does the, um, that term, the what does that term stablecoin would even entail? It's like, they just deregulated French dressing yesterday, the FDA. So now anything can call itself French dressing, but nothing can call itself a stable coin. There needs to be regulations around that, you know, like what a stable coin actually 
is and what the requirements of the companies that issue them? Hopefully, uh, Congress is going to continue what they're currently doing. A couple of weeks ago, um, the House held hearings and they brought in people from the industry to talk about the issues. Yeah. And then a couple weeks later, the Senate did the same thing, although the House seemed to be a little bit more interested in learning. And I think that if the lawmakers listen to the industry and they listen to the public, they will hopefully avoid creating regulations that are going to have unintended consequences. It's interesting how kind of crypto politics became so intertwined with with different types of issues that that we're seeing every single day. I mean, you you ran for you ran for Congress, right? Yeah, I did. Back in uh, 2010, after leaving the Justice Department, I I wanted to serve in the U.S. Congress, um, represent representing the people of the Fourth Congressional District. I I thought that with my career in the Justice Department and understanding what the issues were facing my community, that I would be a really good, reasonable Congresswoman who could work with both sides. But unfortunately, at the time, it was definitely not a not a period where there was a lot of cooperation between uh, Democrats and Republicans, and um, it did it, it did not work out successfully. First of all, I think you should run again, and and I and I'm going to say this because do you think there could potentially be a crypto caucus that could, for the first time in history of our country, supersede political parties? Could you see yourselves? If you were aligned on this issue of of financial literacy, not Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, but like how important financial literacy is and the idea of like decentralized money, decentralized property rights, you think that issues could be solved now by like, you know, kind of going across the aisle? Yes, um, I, I do. And I think that co- the current Congress is recognizing that they're recognizing just how large the cryptocurrency constituency is. And and yeah. they're starting to realize, you know, they, they need to get smart on this. They, they need to learn about it to create sort of common sense regulations. There's one silver lining of, of my congressional loss, uh, and that is that I had the opportunity uh, to uh, join the United Nations and to um, help to conduct the first ever ethics and reputational risk assessment for peacekeeping and special political operations. And so for two years, I traveled around the world to a lot of places where most people will never have the opportunity to go. And at the time, I didn't really, I wasn't thinking about cryptocurrency, but there were many times where I was in the middle of the Congo for weeks at a time, and I would have to carry thousands of dollars and like strap it to my body um, because, you know, there aren't, aren't, um, you know, ATM machines in the middle of the Congo. And thinking of where we are today, had I had cryptocurrency, I wouldn't have had to put myself at, you know, great personal risk to, to be walking around with, with all of this, this, you know, cash. Oh, wow. I was going to ask you what kind of surprised you of that trip, but I think you gave us your answer right there. That is just immense. Well, there, there were a lot of things that surprised me, um, you know, realizing how people live in different parts of the world and how different it is from our society. Um, I, in, in parts of even just sticking with the Congo, where, where they don't have roads and it's hard packed clay and, and people drive around kind of in the back of trucks and they're, you know, selling, selling water on the side of the road or different, you know, pieces of, um, you know, food, you know, food that people can buy. 
it's not at all the same thing as what we have in the U.S. And, and poverty in places like that, uh, we, we wouldn't even recognize it here. That's that's unbelievable. And do you think that a lot of the problems come down to the corruption and the graft of those like specific governments? Because I always I always wondered how how does the United Nations guarantee with their world food programs and all that types of programs, how do they guarantee full like end to end the person that the dollar in is actually the person on the other side is getting what they need. And there's, is there like, I guess a threshold of, 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 of food loss or financial loss due to corruption that the UN is kind of willing to, to accept. You know, that, that's one of the things that I was looking at in, in this ethics and reputational risk assessment. We yeah. were trying to figure out, like, what, what are the top things that can go wrong in, in the United Nations? You know, how is it possible that so, so many, you know, millions of dollars go into the system and they don't, they don't go to the intended purpose? And there is a lot of theft and, and, and graft. And it all comes down to accountability. And, and that, that's what everyone said that you have to have a system of accountability so that there are, you know, consequences for, you know, stealing property and, and that there is an incentive for people to speak up and, and to provide information about wrongdoing and that the system is actually going to resolve itself in a reasonable period of time instead of letting some of these issues, um, you know, take years and years uh, to go through the, the system of justice. I know I kind of bring it back to financial literacy a lot, but I really think that we look at property and we all automatically, everyone thinks real estate. And so we look at property rights. I'm not talking about real estate rights. I'm talking about the rights of an asset holder to maintain and hold that asset and utilize that asset for whatever type of gain or loss or whatever. In anywhere else in the world that I know, property rights are almost... Uh, you know, barring a few places, they're almost non-existent. Uh, they, uh, 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 they're not seen as something that's even necessary. Um, and a lot of times, you know, that can be under the guise of religion or that could be under the guise of like, oh, we need to protect you and could be, you know, uh, a socialism or communism or whatever. But when, when this, when, when the governments, uh, control people's rights to property, you also control people's rights to their education. You control almost every aspect of their lives. So there's no incentive for anyone to reach out and try to, 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 to be that whistleblower or whatever when the government can easily take your paycheck, take your house, take anything you want. So it's, do you think that if uh, with like Bitcoin or some sort of like stable coin that kind of like exists outside of, of those smaller countries, if they existed, it could potentially create a, a hedge for, for the citizens of those countries to have like a non-government currency to prevent their currency from their country from continuing to be corrupt. Absolutely. Um, I, I think that there was a, a book that I, I, I read early on about uh, financial literacy and financial inclusion for women in Africa, because in, in many societies, as you said, um, people are not able to control their own finances. And, you know, particularly women uh, who, who are not allowed to have their own assets. And cryptocurrency gives women that ability. It gives them the ability to hold assets that are not controlled by the government, not controlled by their father or their husband or the brother. And it, it, we need to spread this 
uh, throughout the world to give everyone the opportunity to uh, to have their own finances. How many how many uh, NFT artists are probably not allowed to even tell their their significant other that they're even doing that because of some uh, uh, societal norm that they're not allowed to participate, whether it be a religious or like, oh, the woman's not supposed to be doing this. How many, like, it's probably so many, we don't even realize. And actually, I think it's one of the most beautiful things about our industry is that we don't care who you are, where you're from, what we look like. Your brain is your biggest asset. It's like almost like the brain is uh, a proof of brain is the consensus algorithm that we've kind of brought all together, connecting everyone in a way. I love that. No, thank you for saying that. That makes me feel really a lot better about our whole industry today. I think we have a lot of work to do um, to educate governments around the world about what cryptocurrency is and what it isn't and, and why they don't, why they shouldn't be afraid of it and, and why we should all embrace it. And there, there are a lot of people in the industry who are doing this. And I think that that education is going to continue to grow and, and spread throughout the globe. Not only educating, you know, regulators and governments and politicians, and actually I've seen some, I have friends who now have, it's really cool that, that have like from, um, I have a friend from Barbados and he just became the, uh, one of the ambassadors for Barbados to another country just because of his work bringing like thousands of jobs, crypto jobs to Barbados. So it's really great to see a lot of people getting that that recognition. But let's go let's go to the other side. My listeners are folks who work at crypto companies, work at Bitcoin companies, have founded them. Um, we have listeners who are, are big NFT holders that are issuing their own, whether it be NFTs. You have folks who are issuing their own coins and tokens. And there's a lot of ambiguity. There's a lot of like uh, fear. I I talk to a lot of crypto folks who actually, uh, they're so scared of doing something wrong, even though they feel like they're doing something right, that they can't sleep at night. Do you have any advice for those people? Of course, not legal advice or anything like that, but more of like, you know, coming from like putting your prosecutor hat back on for a second. Did you ever look at the person and try to ask yourself, like, like, does it matter from a listener perspective, does it matter if they're a good person and if they're trying to do the right thing? At the end of the day, if they're caught up in something, does that count? Absolutely. Uh, I, I think that for your listeners who are involved with uh, with cryptocurrency and they're trying to figure out what, whether they're doing something that could, you know, violate some law, I I think they need to go go back to compliance basics. Go back to, um, you know, what what is my business? Who are, who are my customers and how could somebody possibly take my business and, and try to commit crime? And so if you think oh. about that, so, so let, let's go back to the, um, to the old days, you know, when, when, when drug dealers would try to But I didn't drugs. think about that. I, I, I'll be honest with you. When I was running BitInstant, I just kind of, I never said to myself, how could my business be used by criminals? I just was so... A, like ignorant and I, my head was in the clouds of Bitcoin Satoshi God. And it's, it's, it really is it's that basic. I, I remember prosecuting lots of cases where, where drug dealers would take the, uh, you know, the drug proceeds and they would have to launder it somehow. So they'd have to buy stuff, you know, whether they bought property, cars, 
and you know the the local car salesman if the same guy keeps showing up every monday and buying a seventy thousand dollar car you know you need to ask the question uh hey what are you doing with all these cars you know what what, what's your source of income where where'd you get this money and it, it it really is that basic just knowing your customer you know knowing what their behaviors are knowing when they start acting abnormally and and for People who are thinking like that, trying to think about preventing illicit activity, they develop some basic, basic programs. Oh, you guys. Yeah. And that is what we do. We, uh, (laughs) you know, we do provide tools for for, uh, companies to use to to monitor the activity of, uh, you know, customers who are using their platform and to look out for conduct that, that is unusual, conduct that is abnormal for that customer and that might be associated with illicit activity. It might not be, but but at least it gives sort of the the warning flag when you should look a little more carefully at, at the activity. And get getting back to the other part of your question, like does it matter? Does it matter to prosecutors? Absolutely. And and when I would have to make those prosecution decisions about whether a company that has been involved in crime or whether a person that has been involved in crime should or shouldn't be prosecuted. You look at what did they do to prevent this from happening? Did they have some kind of program in place? Even if it didn't work, if it was, you know, intended to work and and they tried to do the right thing, then they do get credit for that. And, And so there are decisions that really turn on whether the person, as you said, is a good person, a good company, whether they try to prevent the illicit activity from happening. I think that early on, too, a lot of people didn't, myself included, we didn't know how you could regulate what was then just Bitcoin. And because of that, there was a fear that if we tried and it was figured out that we couldn't, it would be a lot worse off for us down the road. Um, because we didn't really understand how this technology was going to work. And I, I know I'm making excuses and I'm, I'm just trying to, to look back at myself and figure out where, uh, where my head was more in the clouds. So it, it's, it's really interesting. So let, yeah. Let me ask you, was bit instant where you, were you registered as a money service business? So I registered, uh, uh, for FinCEN as a money service business. Um, when, I didn't even know what a money service business actually meant. It was just like a form that I filled out when I was in my cousin's warehouse. I was the only employee of the company. And and so we registered, but I didn't really understand the implications of what that actually meant. And that was all my fault. Um, so I, my advice to people will always be understand the implications of what you're doing and how it affects you know, everyone around you. That, that's absolutely right, and it's unfortunate that that you had to learn learn this really hard lesson. I, I think that FinCEN is doing a much better job today, uh, trying to educate people about you know why we have money service business regulations. What are they doing to, to try to prevent our um, you know currency, whether it's uh, U.S. dollars or cryptocurrency, from being used for illicit purposes, and and how to you know, help people to, to try to be more compliant. You said something very interesting there, and I want to dive in here for a second. So, so we have a lot of people on our, on our show who, who come from different countries and they're learned, uh, you know, and I'm not talking about the Eurozone, but outside of that, where their currency 
is almost like nationalistic pride. And so they learned like you have to protect our economy, protect our financial system, protect our, it's your duty as citizen of this country. I never really learned that in school. I always, I was taught that the dollar is the world's currency. So, so maybe it's not my duty to protect it. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I think when you think about all, all the ways that dollars or cryptocurrency can be used to do really bad things, like hold companies and, and their information ransom uh, to take, take dollars in cryptocurrency and use it to facilitate international terrorism. When you think, when you extrapolate out to all of the bad things you know, that, that money can be used for, you, you get a much better sense of why you want to try to prevent your company and, and the assets that are generated by your company from being used for, for really bad things. Um, you know, human trafficking, uh, I mean, that, that's, you know, one of the worst, worst, you know, sins against humanity. It's all around and, us. Yes. It's really bad. I read today that they're training truck drivers now. Uh, to to be able to spot it on the, all the Florida highways. I just read that this morning. How can crypto, I mean, solve that that problem? That that really, that's a global pandemic, if anything. Well, you know, a lot of the the companies like Merkle Science, um, we have developed um, blockchain analytics that allow companies uh, to trace to trace the assets, and and you can actually see whether assets are interacting with wallets that have been involved with ransomware, with terrorism, with um, sexual exploitation, human trafficking. And, and so we have those tools, they, they are in place. And, and if we use them, we can help to make sure that cryptocurrency is not being used to foster that type of illicit activity. You know, when the Keystone pipeline happened a few months ago, or was it, a, was it a, probably over a year ago, not the Keystone pipeline, but which pipeline got they shut down all of the oil along the East Coast because there was like a ransomware. They shut down that pipeline. It was, I forget which one it was, but when that happened and like gas prices started going up, people, you know, were lining up at the, at the gas stations. They couldn't get gas anymore. I was smiling to myself that the hackers were asking for Bitcoin because what I was saying to myself was they just shot themselves in the foot. It's all on the blockchain. The, the government's going to be able to catch these guys in like a few days. Whereas if they wanted a wire transfer or cash drop somewhere in some foreign country, first of all, you wouldn't know about it, but that would take a lot longer. Yeah, and, and that's exactly what happened. So, yes, you out. know, FinCEN and the Department of Justice and other um, agencies are working really closely with the industry and with blockchain analytics companies like Marvel Science to work together to share information and, and to try to prevent this from happening. And when it does happen, to shut it down. Uh, you know, as quickly as possible. Going back to what you said, it's like you have to ask yourself how how my business can be can be used by by criminals and nefarious. Um, we're going into 2022 with with crazy things like the metaverse and Web three and virtual. Not Russians. You say the word virtual is probably outdated, but Web you know metaverse fashion shows are happening. There's one happening today with millions of people in these worlds and. And there are many economies. People are going there. They're spending money on things. They're back and forth. What should Metaverse, Web3, NFT issuers, companies, what do they need to be looking out for? Because I think it's pretty, un pretty well understood that if you're a Bitcoin exchange, if you're a broker dealer, 
if you're operating with like money transmission, money services, businesses, what can the criminals be doing? But what can they be doing with the metaverse? I mean, we're talking about slavery in the metaverse potentially, right? We're talking about money laundering still. Is it still the same type of things? And are the criminals are smart. How do we stop them? The wonderful thing about Web3 and the metaverse is that uh, it is intended to be permissionless, that no one can you know, prevent you from accessing um, you know, the, these systems and services. But there has to be a way to have a kind of a, a gate, gatekeeper on like one end to booth. make sure right, that the assets that are coming in uh, are not derived from criminal activity. So there is the opportunity, I think, to screen the assets as they come in to see um, you know, what, what they have been associated with in the past. And, and that really goes back to you know, Compliance 101. Who's your customer? Know your customer. Where, where did they get their funds? Where did they come from? You know, have they been associated with criminal activity in the past? And, and that's the mechanism, I think, that needs to be put in place so that all of these great new innovations are not uh, you know, crushed by illicit activity. Do you guys offer uh, training? Because I feel like any new hire at any crypto company should have to go through this like one week intensive on like the 101 basics of compliance because the most simple things that you think are simple, like for example, myself and almost everyone I know would have thought that you have to focus more on like, where is the money going? But in fact, it's no, it's where did the money come from is as equally as important as knowing your customer. I didn't know that. Yeah, Merkle Science does have the Merkle Academy and we provide training for uh, for companies, for governments, um, individuals, and and we have various levels of training from you know cryptocurrency 101 um, and and uh, to to much more sophisticated issues in the crypto space. That's really. Uh, do you guys offer like uh, type of things when it comes to securities? And um, we didn't really get into this about like credit credit and investor laws and securities. Some of the the biggest question, like I just had someone the other day, I said. So if a security is something where someone believes they're going to be getting profit from it, if I'm a digital artist and I'm offering some sort of like redemption to meet me and there's a value to like have dinner with me potentially, is it, can that be potentially con- constituted as a security? And the reason I'm bringing that up is because all you need is one case where it's like someone paid a million dollars for an NFT to then meet someone and then that could have been a security. I, it's, it seems like going into, the, into this year, it, the laws, the, the clarity is getting a little bit more gray. Yeah, I think that the, um, the SEC is, has been trying for the last um, several years. I mean, since the, their initial Dow report came out uh, oh, yeah. on, my birth, on my birthday, July 25th <laughs> um, of 2017, and they you know, tried to explain um, what... The, the regulations are with regard to investment contracts and to sort of try to bring the Howey test up to, you know, the present day to, to help people sort of analyze the issues behind investment contracts. And, and they followed that 2017 guidance with um, a few enforcement actions, which I would say were actions against kind of the low hanging fruit, like, uh, like the Munchie case, which yeah. is pretty instructive to, let people know these are all the things that you don't want to do uh, when you are, uh, you know, c- creating a new token and, and 
uh, you know, selling that token in the market. And so by the mistakes, I think, that, that are being made, the SEC is bringing certain cases to try to educate the public about what not to do. And, and they're, they're trying, they're trying to issue guidance so that people can stay on the right path and not commit those mistakes. But I think more, more education is definitely needed. Yeah, more education is definitely needed. But you've given us so much education today. I really appreciate you taking the time and, and coming on and talking to me and talking to my listeners about, you know, what, what can we expect in the future, but really kind of like bringing up all of the, the history of compliance and regulation up from like 10 years ago today. And it seems like what's good is that the industry and governments have been in good lockstep, even if it's like within a year range, it seems like everyone is in pretty good lockstep. It's not like, you know, one is years behind the other and you're going to have contention and stuff like that. The relationship between our industries and various governments and regulators is very good. I mean, do you have any friends who still are higher up in government that are naysayers of our industry that really still believe that crypto and Bitcoin is just kind of doomed to fail? Or is everyone kind of on board at this point? No, I, I think there are definitely still some naysayers, but those people, I think, are in the minority. The, well, one of the reasons that I really fell I- into crypto as much as I am today is with an experience that I had um, with a young uh, young uh, cryptocurrency exchange that was having difficulties with an agency that wanted to put them out of business because they weren't registered. But the problem is, uh, there was really not a pathway for them to register, and the act provided a way for them to have an exemption from registration. But this agency almost put the, the entire company out of business, and the holders of crypto assets would have lost millions of dollars, and it took a tremendous effort to educate the, um, the, the congressional committees about what this agency was doing, and it took a lot of effort wow. to educate the agency about what they were doing. And this experience took about a year, but we were able to persuade the agency that what they were doing is wrong. And and that's what, when the light bulb really went off and I said, like, this is, this is huge. I mean, I, I helped this company stay in business and, and and this is really needed in our space today. We, We need people who can understand the issues in cryptocurrency, but also speak kind of the same language as the regulators and help them to understand so that they don't do things that are going to have such serious and significant um, unintended consequences. Unintended consequences. Should regulators be elected instead of appointed? Would that make a difference with our institutions in general? Like even like the national, you know, Surgeon General or like someone like who the top doctor of the country or whatever. So I think that the way the way our system works, um, you know, the members of Congress are elected and. And so both the Congress and, and the, or rather the House and the Senate, and they sit on committees that oversee these agencies. So it's up to our elected representatives to make sure that the government agencies are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And so it's up to those members of Congress and those committees to make sure that the, the committees really understand the issues. And, and that, that is what is needed. And I think we're seeing much more education today, but we need to keep doing it because remember, you know, a lot of the people that you may have trained, you know, last year or the year before, they might know they might not be sitting in office anymore. 
their staff, you know, Good may point. have turned over and gone somewhere else. So it, it, it's a constant thing that we have to do. Ed, education, you know, ha- has to be continuous. Thank you so much. I completely agree. Mary Beth Buchanan, Merkel Science, everyone is going to be at the academy. You're going to be getting phone calls from businesses that are going to be asking you to, to help do them the same thing. Um, so so I, I look forward to hearing about kind of the, the stories that, that you're going to give us a year from now. Um, and we'll be talking about what to look forward in 2023. Well, I certainly hope so. And for those of you who are going to be attending the North American Bitcoin Conference next week in Miami, come see us. Merkel oh, Science yeah, will be, be there. We'd love to meet you.